Hey, Sean here. Before we get started, one really important housekeeping note. We're changing the name of the show to Security Sandbox. Next week, we'll be changing the podcast art as well. But hackerculture.fm is still the website where you can find everything. More details to come later. This is not an April Fool's joke, by the way, I promise. And so I called him out on Twitter. I said, like, if it's my iPad, why don't I get to decide what apps run on it? And he was like, well, if you don't like that, then why buy an iPad? I'm like, hold on. Is it mine or isn't it? Right? Like, it, it you know, does, does the dead hand of the manufacturer lay on it after I buy it ready to go upside my head if I fail to arrange my affairs to benefit the shareholders rather than myself? And, and how is it in the interest of rights holders? You're listening to Security Sandbox, a podcast about the makers and breakers shaping cybersecurity. I'm your host, Sean Sun, and on this episode, Cory Doctorow stops by to talk about his new book, Radicalized, a collection of four science fiction novellas. While technological innovations can propel us towards a bright future, there are times where the policies surrounding them can hold us back or even change your path towards a less than optimal world. Whether it's social credit scores or DRM everything, or even climate change, we may not always care about the issue until it's almost too late. But sometimes the best way to bring these problems to light is through fiction. Cory Doctorow is an award-winning author who writes to remind us to become masters of our own technology. On this episode, we talk about his book Radicalized, future-proofing your work, and how to make ginger liqueur. Corey Doctorow, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be on. Yeah. Um, so you are a author, you are a blogger, uh, you are also an activist, and you just released Radicalized. Can you tell the listeners what Radicalized is? Sure. Radicalized is a science fiction book. It, it collects four novellas uh, that deal with themes of technology, individual agency, human thriving, the limits of human uh, thriving and individual agency, and so on. The first story, it's called Unauthorized Bread. Uh, it's being adapted for TV by Topic, or uh, part of The Intercept. And it's it's a story about um, refugees and kind of Internet of Things nightmare housing, where all of the appliances are designed to, to suck every penny they have out of them. You know, the toast to the toaster only toasts authorized bread, and the, the dishwasher only washes authorized dishes. And to add insult to injury, these appliances um, stop working because the hedge funds that own them manage to financially engineer themselves into bankruptcy. And so they have to learn how to jailbreak them, which is great until the companies start to come back and they're now at risk of the telemetry in these appliances uh, ratting them out. And you know, since what they've done is a felony under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, they could face deportation back to the countries they fled in fear of their lives. And then the, the second story, it's a superhero story called Model Minority. Uh, and it's a fictionalized account of, of uh, superheroes, an awful lot like Superman, getting involved in the, in the beating of an African-American man by the same cops who murdered Eric Garner on the NYPD. And about the fact that he's reached a breaking point and decided to uh, break with white supremacy and the American political consensus because he thinks that he's safe in doing so. Uh, and very quickly discovers that Although he thinks that he's part of the white establishment, as, as far as the establishment is concerned, it's very easy to make him neither white nor human. Uh, and, you know, the last people into the white privilege vote are the first people out of it. And it's a story about what it means to be an ally and whose story allyship is about. Is it about the person who's finally stepping up or the people who've been laboring all along? And, you know, the, the very uncomfortable question that allies have to answer, which is, you know, it's nice you're here now, but where have you been until now? And then the third story, it's called Radicalized, uh, and it's about underground message boards for uh, people whose loved ones are notionally for people whose loved ones are dying of cancer. But it, it, it turns out to be about uh, message boards for people whose loved ones are dying of cancer because their insurers have uh, denied them coverage uh, for, for what the insurer deems to be uh, experimental uh, treatments. And so you, you have these... Um, traumatized, uh, respectable white dudes of the sort who would normally take out their trauma by murdering their loved ones or shooting up a mosque, but who instead become terrorists who murder healthcare executives. And it's again about, about what we think of as radicalization and what it really looks like and what, what role the internet plays and how solidarity can also be a source of, of toxic uh, feelings as well as, as well as noble ones. 
And then the last story is called The Mask of the Red Death, and it's about preppers who go off and, and hide uh, while the end of the world comes, thinking that when, when the end of the world is over and, and the suckers have rebuilt it, that they can emerge from their hidey holes with their thumb drives full of Bitcoin and their guns and their uh, you know gemstone quality precious stones and, and kind of live out a, a Frank Frazetta painting where they get to be warlords who uh, can take harems and kind of boss everybody else around the way that it was always intended to be. And, and about how any kind of end of the world that doesn't involve uh, sorting out the sanitation uh, is not the kind of end of the world that you survive. It's the kind of end of the world that you, you die in any way. And, and, you know, it doesn't really matter how many guns you have. You, you just can't shoot germs. Yeah. I mean, highly recommend anyone to read all four of them. Um, I think my favorite one is still Unauthorized Bread, just because um, there is that cybersecurity aspect of it, of jailbreaking. Um, I just... I just found it really funny with where, you know, it took her, it, like, she was, I remember the line, like, uh, she was late for work for 45 minutes, but God damn it, she had to have toast that morning. Um, so, um, and, and for the listeners who um, may not know you as well, but also might have heard of your previous books, uh, Little Brother and Homeland, the, a common theme that you explore with all your books is that you write fiction to dramatize uh, essentially, like really terrible technological things, either their policies or their in innovations that we've created. Would you say that's fair? You know, I, I I think that's half the story. I don't want people to get the the sense that I'm a kind of dystopian Debbie Downer here. Um, you know, I think that that um, it's not dystopian to imagine that technology will fail us or that things might go wrong. I think it's dystopian to imagine that we can't get them fixed again. So my stories are about technology being used to control people and about people seizing control of the technology to, to take back control of their lives. Um, and, you know, I do try to use fiction to dramatize uh, uh, questions of technological policy and cybersecurity and so on, but it's always in, in service to this wider goal of encouraging people to, to master their technology. You know, I think that when, when STEM education started, it wasn't about this instrumental idea that, you know, if you learn STEM, you'll get a good job someday. It was it was about technological self-defense that you have to program or you'll be programmed. So I know that you have um, a theory of peak indifference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, the, the way that I think about this is that um, you have uh, problems where the cause and effect are separated by a lot of time and space. And so it's hard to even know that there is a problem, let alone how to solve it. You know, if you think about things like, say, climate change, the, the, the fact that it's very hard to iteratively approach solutions to climate change makes it really, really hard to figure out what to do about it uh, and, and to even convince people that they should do something about it. And, and you know, that indifference um, is really toxic. And it, for all that it's very toxic, it eventually solves itself in the sense that if you give it enough time, if the problem is real, it will destroy so many people's lives that that everyone will either know someone whose lives have been destroyed by it or will have experienced that themselves and they'll cease to be indifferent. The problem is that if the, if the cause and effect are attenuated enough, the point at which people actually care might be the point of no return. You know, if, if I spend years and years trying to convince you to care about rhino populations and you finally decide that it's time to do something about it, but, you know, it's the day that there's only one rhino left, it, it's pretty tempting to say, well, at this point, we might as well just find out what he tastes like, you know. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, there's this kind of race between indifference and, and, um, and the point of no return or nihilism and denialism. And so one of the things that you can do when you when you tell stories is you give a kind of like architectural fly through of the lived experience of bad technological choices that are, you know, whose whose effects will be a long way down the road. And you can get people to really um, uh, start to think about this before it's too late and, and show people that there's hope, which is not the same as op optimism. You know, hope is, is the idea that if you take action, you might find another action you can take. It's, it's a hill climbing thing, hope. You know, if, if you follow a gradient, then you might find new ways to, to continue to ascend that gradient. Um, and, and eventually you will, you will, uh, reach some kind of local peak. Optimism is, is, is kind of fatalism, right? Optimism is the idea that if you, you don't really need to do anything, because if you just wait long enough, the problems will solve themselves. And, you know, I, I think that 
science fiction writers suck at predicting the future because the future is intrinsically unpredictable because if the future were predictable, then what we did wouldn't matter. I think the future is unpredictable because it's dynamic, adversarial, and changes based on what we do. Right. Um, yeah, I absolutely agree. And I also know that you have a uh, recipe for writing future-proof science fiction. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a somewhat dismal recipe. And in order to 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 write science fiction that remains futuristic feeling in the years to come, you you should make a few core assumptions. One is that computer science is relatively stable. Uh, you know, we we made lots of of uh, advances in computer engineering, but computer science, you know, we're still using Turing complete von Neumann machines, and and notably, we fail to make almost Turing complete computers. You know, we, we can't make a computer that runs all the programs except for the an undesirable one or one that pisses off a lawmaker. Or, you know, as a, as a as a Canadian, you know, I lament the fact that we can't figure out how to make a a, a computer that can drive a three D printer to print everything except a gun. But but uh, you know, I acknowledge that that's the truth, right? And so if we're going to have policy remedies, if we acknowledge that that's a problem, then we'll have to have policy remedies that actually address it head on. So assume that that uh, computer science is relatively stable. Uh, assume that computers will continue to become important to people's lives in, in new and important ways, that, that there is no end in sight for the importance of computers. Uh, and assume that lawmakers will continue to fail to come to grips with those two realities. And so the consequences of bad technology policy will just continue to mount, that will accumulate policy debt and technology debt that uh, will have no end in sight. Yeah. How many years have you been writing for? Well, I started selling stories when I was a teenager. So I was 17, that was 1988. Um, I sold my first novel in, uh, well, it came out in 2000, as, as I say. I had a nonfiction book before that. Uh, all told, I've written over 20 books. Um, a bunch of them are novels, some for young adults, some for adults. Uh, I've got one picture book coming out next year for little, little kids. Uh, I've written essay collections, uh, book-length nonfiction, uh, many short story collections, and so on. So so a pretty wide variety of material over the years. Um, and before you started writing, I believe you were at EFF, is that correct? No, I was doing both at the same time. You know, I, as I say, oh, okay. I started selling fiction as a teenager. Uh, I sold my first novel while doing a startup, uh, a peer-to-peer -peer free and open right. software open search cola. engine called OpenCola. Yeah, we had a stunt where we made a, a, a free as in cola, cola that, that had a recipe on the side with a license. It was before Creative Commons, so we used a software license. I think it was the Perl artistic license. Uh, and, um, and, and so I was writing then, and, and my novel started selling in earnest while I was EFF's European director. So I was traveling, you know, 27 days a month and was in 31 countries in three years. And I had to learn to write really efficiently, write, write even when, you know, I was very tired or anxious and when I was on the road and when I couldn't arrange things, you know, optimally and so on. I, I, it really served me well. It's, it's given me a bunch of work habits that to this day are very effective. So let's go back to OpenCola. Um, what did you do at OpenCola? Oh, I was, uh, you know, involved very early on in figuring out, you know, the idea for the technology, but I was never enough of a programmer to be the programmer. So I ended up doing a kind of glorified business development role. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we, we made some pretty cool stuff, uh, particularly we made like a peer-to-peer a, a -peer swarming distribution system called Swarmcast with a, um, uh, you know, forward error correction that was really efficient, very, very similar to BitTorrent. Uh, and we ended up getting an acquisition offer from uh, a giant tech company and our venture capitalist went bananas and decided to cram out the founders to take all the equity before we got sold. And so I quit and I ended up working for the Electronic Frontier Foundation and, you know, our VC's greedy jerkiness ended up crashing the company and it was sold for its tax credits to uh, a company called OpenText, which I think is still around in some form today. Yep. And uh, while you might not be a programmer, you are very technical, at least um, we were talking about your uh, process for writing um, or your habits or your actually, I would say your discipline for writing and also your workflow. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about how that all works? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, the best writing advice I ever got that I that I didn't pay attention to for far too long was uh, the, the that writing every day uh, becomes a habit and habits are things you get for free. And if you write every day, you can write even on days when you don't feel like writing. And in particular, I was very assisted in doing that by the realization that although there were days when I felt like I was writing well and days when I felt like I was writing poorly, and although my manuscripts sometimes had text that was ready to go and, and text that, 
needed a lot of work, that those two things weren't correlated, right? That the, the subjective experience of writing prose was unrelated to the objective quality of it. Uh, and that really the, you know, biggest determinant of the subjective experience of writing prose is things like how much sleep I got last night and what my blood sugar level is at and how much anxiety I'm feeling overall and so on. And so once I realized that I could write even when it felt like the writing wasn't coming, right? I could, I could write the words even if they felt unworthy. You know, the corollary of that is that writing becomes a little anhedonic, right? You, you, it gets sapped to some of the pleasure because if you're being rigorous and honest with yourself, you have to recognize that on days when it feels like you're writing really well, you're probably not writing any better than your median day anyway. That, that again, like it's th that pleasure that you're taking is probably also misplaced. Um, and, and so I write every day and, and to write every day, uh, it helps to have some tricks and some heuristics. My, my top stupid writing trick is to uh, finish in the middle of a sentence, which, which gives you a couple, three words you can write the next day without having to be too uh, creative. Uh, people I know who know how to drive uh, stick shift, which is not a thing I know how to do, have compared this to parking your hill on a downhill slope. And, you know, you can get it rolling before you pop the clutch in, which is literally everything I know about stick shifts. Uh, and th the heuristic that for me that really works is to imagine or to understand that the aesthetic effect of fiction comes from this kind of cognitive illusion in which we ascribe consequence to the objectively inconsequential actions of imaginary people, right? You know, the, the most tragic death in fiction mattered less than the, you know, death of the yogurt you ate this morning for breakfast. That was actually alive and now it's dead. Romeo and Juliet never lived, they never died, they don't matter. And the way that that cognitive illusion arises is because we have this empathic, unconscious empathic capacity that when we, we take in fragmentary information about others, we uh, organize it by building mental models of those people. And when we learn that other people have experienced hardship or joy or what have you, the way that we experience it is by imagining those mental models that are in our minds, imagining them going through it too. And so the way that you invoke this with fiction is, is you need to engage readers in this process in which they, they unconsciously start to treat imaginary people as real. And so you want to make the imaginary person as real as possible. And so you start with a person in a place because all, all real people have places that they're in and they have names. And then you give them a problem because we're nosy. Um, I'm skeptical of accounts from evolutionary biology because they always seem to be just so stories. But that said, it's easy to understand how like paying attention to other people's problems would pay off in your own future. If you were to experience the problem too, you maybe could get some insight into how to solve it. So you give them a problem uh, and then you have them try to solve it intelligently because watching people solve problems unintelligently is of limited interest because you, you, the conclusion is foregone. Uh, and so the reader has some suspense because they want to see if it comes out. And then you have them fail through no fault of their own such that things get worse. And now you have a new problem for them to solve in rising tension. And this is a, a, a heuristic that you can follow to increase the tension that at every stage you can ask yourself, what is it that this person is trying to solve? How can they try to solve it intelligently? For what reason will they fail? And how will things get worse? And you can follow that day to day. And if you follow that day to day in your work, eventually you'll reach a point where the stakes can't get any higher. And that's the climax of the story. Right. And, and then either it has a happy ending or a sad ending and you're done. Right. So it's, it's an interesting model in that it may not get you there by the most direct method, but you will always attain a kind of local maximum. Right. You'll always attain a climax if you, if you do it that way. Yeah. Um, I was also, I was also talking about just your workflow in terms of your Git server and. Oh, sure. Yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. This, this guy, Thomas Gideon, this, this great, um, uh, Python hacker, uh, wrote me a, uh, a little script that runs in the background. It's a little cron job that runs every 15 minutes. It's on GitHub. It's called, uh, it's called Flashbake, which is a term for my first novel. And every 15 minutes, it looks at your working files in your directory, and it, it checks to see whether there have been any changes, and then it checks their diffs into a local Git server, uh, and it grabs the, um, for context, it grabs you know the last three headlines in your RSS feed, so the last three things I put on Boing Boing, uh, the last song I've listened to, and then if it can figure out where I am from my IP address, it looks up the weather. And so for pretty much every paragraph I've written for something like a decade now, I have that bit of context. Where was I? What was I thinking about? What was I listening to? It's really cool. I, I mean, so far, you know, nothing's come of it. But 
uh, I figure someday I will donate that um, that database to um, you know the library where they archive my papers. There's a, a science fiction library in Toronto called the Merrill Collection that I grew up uh, attending as a kid, and and now they archive my papers for me. And I figure someday I'll just give them the database. That's awesome. Um, so what is the what is the most recent song you listen to? Oh goodness, um, I would have to look it up in my Git repo, but I can just tell you by looking at, okay. at, at Rhythmbox. <laughs> uh, oh, it was. Um, David Byrne and St. Vincent's live version of uh, Road to Nowhere from the Brass Tactics EP. I'm a giant Talking Heads fan, like a crazily giant Talking Heads fan. There's a new uh, album of covers of their 1980 album, Remain in Light, recorded by Angelique Kiju, who's this Beninese diva who's won a bunch of Grammys. And so it's an Afrobeat al- album-length recreation of Remain in Light. And it is so unbelievably fantastically good. It's almost the only thing I've listened to for about two weeks. And I just bought tickets to see her when she comes to the Hollywood Bowl. That's awesome. I will have to check that out. Um, I will also leave a link to that in the show notes. Um, so you were saying that you are a editor, boing boing, um, or actually you are the co-editor, uh, co-editor one of the co-editors. Of, yeah. yeah. Um, and I see that boing boing has a gift guide. I'm curious, what is your favorite gift on that gift guide? Oh, gosh, I'd have to look it up. Hang on. Uh, all right, here we go. 2018 gift guide. Oh, you know what? I think the best thing this year was the D&D uh, Art and Arcana box set. This this okay. huge box with a 400-page retrospective of classic D&D art and then a, a, a repro of the um, the Tomb of Horrors uh, module that Gary Gygax created to like kill overpowered characters. It's all traps. There's no monsters. It's super clever. And it's recreated in the same size as the original Redbox D&D modules. Um, and then it's just repros of tons of classic TSR era art. It's, it's, it's a gorgeous, uh, huge package with all kinds of, you know, like posters and everything inside it. I love it. Um, okay. So I guess going back to the book a little bit, um, you're on tour right now. Uh, how's that tour been? Yeah, it's really good. I mean, being on tour, it's, you know, it's a marathon, uh, and it's, and it's crazy, right? You get up super early every morning and get on an airplane. Um, and you do press all day and then you do an event till reasonably late at night and then you get up super early the next morning, get on an airplane again. You know, it's had its ups and downs, but like I've met all kinds of great, fun and exciting people and um, done some really good pressers. I, I just came from uh, recording a, a podcast with Dan Savage, the amazing sex advice columnist. And I, I talked about the future of the internet and managed to give some sex advice, which is not a subject I, I claim to be an expert on, but you know, I deferred to him where we had a disagreement. Uh, and, um, you know, apart from uh, uh, Alaska Air broke my suitcase today. But apart from that, everything's been good. Awesome. Um, do you have any strategies for self-care that mm-hmm. you practice? Yeah. So, I, as I mentioned, I have a suitcase that I check. And that's because I have some some comfort items. Uh, and, uh, you know, first and foremost among them, I have a collapsing silicone kettle and an AeroPress and coffee. And I used to I used to pack a hand grinder and gr- grind fresh every morning, but it takes a long time. And I just woke up one day and I was like, the, I have only got so many duty cycles left in my wrist tendons, and when <laughs> they expire, so does my career as a writer. And like using it to to grind coffee is not a good fit. And so now I buy like half pounds of coffee at nice coffee shops on the road and have them grind it. It lasts for you know three four days, so it's never that that stale. Um, I I also I. I, uh, I have a really nice pair of pajamas that I travel with. There's something about getting into pajamas before bed that I really believe in. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I have a chronic pain problem. So I, I swim every day and my publisher kind enough to put me up in hotels with pools. And uh, and I have an underwater MP3 player that I load audiobooks onto. And it's really nice to kind of switch off my mind and listen to a novel for an hour. Yeah. Uh, that's really great. Yeah. Um, I'm a Chemex person myself. I, I mean, I'm all... I, I, Chemexes are, are well and good. They take a while and they're a lot more grind sensitive and procedural, procedurally sensitive. Um, the thing about air presses is that they're super forgiving, right? Your water doesn't have to be within a temperature range. You know, it has a very wide temperature range. The grind has a very wide grind range. Um, you know, the steep time is, is also doesn't make a huge difference. You know, I've, I've, I've followed the super pernickety recipes where you use a certain kind of water and you turn it upside down and you time it and you make sure the water is exactly the right temperature. And I've done, I've done like A-B splits and I, the gains are so marginal that it's just not, you know, and, the, and the, the basic cup is so good even when, you know, you're way off an optimal procedure that, you know, I'll do it every time. It's, it's, it's great, especially, you know, you're tired and exhausted and whatever. I, yeah. 
Oh, and I also travel with a flask of really nice bourbon. I've got some Woodford Double Oak that I bought on my way uh, to Canada uh, last week on my on my Toronto stop. Um, okay, so speaking of drinking liquids, um, Open Cola, you guys did a promotion run where you 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 released a recipe for Open Cola. Would you would you recommend rum in Open Cola? Uh, I don't like sugary drinks, so no. <laughs> I drank more sugary drinks back then, but uh, no, I don't. I don't. Uh, I'm not a fan of sugar drinks. What I would recommend for with rum, I make a, an unsweetened ginger liqueur where I take just cheap brandy and about a pound of ginger and you mix the brandy half and half with uh, water and then you boil a pound of ginger in it chopped up. You don't have to skin it for about 20 minutes and you put it in a sealed jar with a vanilla pod and after a day you take the vanilla pod out and reseal the jar and then one day later you strain it through a cheesecloth. And it's, it's a basic uh, ginger liqueur recipe, the difference being that you're not adding any sweetener. And so the ginger, it's like, um, it's super fiery. It's really amazing. And when you cut it 50-50 with rum, which I call a Jessica rabbit because it's an extraordinary ginger, uh, <laughs> it, it is an absolutely mind-bogglingly good drink. Okay. Awesome. Um, now we just need, now we just need uh, a, like, an IoT machine that makes, like, perfect perfect ginger liqueur just like the bread um, yeah yeah exactly there's yeah. you know there's this uh festival i used to go to every year in in vienna called um uh techno exotica robo exotica and it was a cocktail robotics festival with prizes in five categories um uh, robots that made drinks robots that drank drinks robots that <laughs> smoked robots that made uh boozy conversation and uh, and miscellaneous and I could totally see a clanky IoT Rube Goldberg machine that made ginger liqueur uh, at the um, at, at Robo Exotica. Do you think that you will ever write a science fiction novella on that? About cocktail robots? Um, I it's it's in nothing is impossible. <laughs> um, okay. But you know the way that I approach this stuff uh, mm -hmm. is that I you know I write Boing Boing every day, and Boing Boing is like everything that I have seen that seems significant in some way. Even if I can't pin down exactly what the significance is, I try to write it up for a notional stranger. And when you write things for strangers, it imposes rigor on it in a way that making notes for yourself lacks rigor. You know, you, I, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of going back to your own notes and not remembering what you meant because they were so fragmentary. And so this, this is a mnemonic exercise, right? Like putting stuff down for strangers and writing it up rigorously helps you bring it to mind later. And I feel like it turns your subconscious into a kind of like super saturated solution of fragmentary story ideas. And that every now and again, some of them will like stick together and nucleate and crystallize into novels or short stories or novellas or essays or book-length nonfiction. And, and that it's this synthetic or syncretic methodology that's very powerful. And so, you know, uh, like a cocktail robotic a robot is like a, a, an eighth of an idea. Right. It's the kind of thing that sort of floats around in there looking for other stuff to stick to unexpected connections. And it's in those unexpected connections that you get the really interesting stuff. So do you feel that that happened with like unauthorized bread or model minority? Yeah, I, I mean, I think so. I mean, the, the, you know, the other thing that happens when you when you have these big themes that you address is you circle them over and over again. You know, it's it's iterative. So you write a piece to try and express what's on your mind, and then you write another one and another one. And in this case, you know, um, the uh, uh, unauthorized bread actually has a pretty um, clear-cut lineage. It started uh, with frustration that I had trying to explain to people why it was illegitimate for Apple to decide uh, which apps you could install on your devices. In particular, when Canada was adopting its own version of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, I got into a big fight with a member of parliament who was pushing for it, a guy named um, uh, James Moore, who was MP in British Columbia for Coquitlam. And, you know, Moore, he's, he was in the Conservative Party. He fancied himself a an advocate for property rights. And so I called him out on Twitter. I said, like, if it's my iPad, why don't I get to decide what apps run on it? And he was like, well, if you don't like that, then why buy an iPad? I'm like, hold on. <laughs> is it mine or isn't it right like it, it, uh -huh. you know does does the dead hand of the manufacturer lay on it after i buy it ready to go upside my head if i fail to arrange my affairs to benefit the shareholders rather than myself and and how is it in the interest of rights holders right of software developers to not be able to sell their work to customers for software unless they have the blessing and tip 30 percent 
to this, you know, distant, uncaring multinational that makes arbitrary and capricious choices. And so, you know, people people had all these arguments about how it enhances safety and it protects copyright and all this other crap. And so I wrote a little essay for The Guardian back when I was writing for them called If iPhones Were Dishwashers. And it was a letter from a Steve Jobs figure who was the, uh, the CEO and founder of a new kind of dishwasher company who was explaining to people why it was illegitimate for them to expect to put grandma's china in their dishwasher and why they shouldn't expect to be able to put uh, dishes uh, of their own making or, or by third parties in their dishwasher and how foodborne illnesses have killed more people than any other illness in the history of the world. And, and you know, you can't expect to get your dishes clean and sanitary if, if you think that you can just put any dishwasher you want and, you know, that your dishwasher is not a product, it's an experience. All the same garbage that you get from from people who think that owning an Apple product makes you a member of an oppressed ethnic minority. And it, it was interesting because it clearly didn't break through. The I got the same, you know, hateful response from from Apple uh fanboys who were like, oh, you're just writing this because uh because you know you want the clickbait because you know we'll be outraged if you write it. You know, this kind of weird self-fulfilling prophecy. Um uh, and, and, you know, it, I really wanted to kind of dig into it at, at greater length. And I have this theory about, about bad technology, that our, our bad technology adoption curve uh, starts with people who, when they complain, no one listens. And so when you have a bad technological idea, first you make refugees and immigrants and poor people and students and mental patients and prisoners and parolees and welfare recipients use it. And then after it's been normalized and gone through its shakedown, then blue collar workers and gig economy workers and eventually white, white collar workers end up using these, these technologies. And so I thought, you know, if I, if I tell a story about refugees, uh, who are being forced to use DRM, I can show that bad technology adoption curve at its very start before we shave the edges off of it, you know, back, back, you know, be, be, before we've made it respectable enough to, to force, uh, wealthy privileged people to use. And, and that will make the story more vivid. And I think, I think it worked, right? I think it really strikes it at something. No, definitely. Actually, so speaking of DRM, do you see anything uh, that exists nowadays that has DRM that's almost like unsafe to general health? Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the biggest example would be Johnson & Johnson's artificial pancreas. You know, the regulatory approval for a, a device that has a continuous glucose monitor, an insulin pump, little machine learning junk in between to try and, you know, control the dose and, and dial in a dose that keeps your, uh, you know, relatively static or safe, safe range of, of blood sugar. And insulin, it's, it's obviously like in the public domain, right? Banting and Best, when they right. discovered it, they sold the patent for a dollar. Uh, they thought it would be immoral to restrict access to insulin. And even though there've been like small improvements over the years that allowed for repatenting, it's, it's, you know, there is so much public domain insulin manufacturing out there that, that you know, that in all other things being equal, uh, Johnson and Johnson couldn't stop you from just refilling your insulin cartridges. So they've made a cartridge that has DRM in it and it registers when it's empty. And if you refill it, it won't recognize the new consumable, right? Just like an inkjet printer. And so, you know, there are a bunch of consequences to this. One is that, of course, we are making people's ability to keep their their organs functional. Uh, we're making it contingent on them arranging their affairs to benefit Johnson & Johnson shareholders, which is like manifestly unjust. But also one of the things that happens with DRM is that because the DMCA is so broadly worded, people who disclose defects in DRM systems uh, face potential liability under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. They, they can have both criminal and civil liability. And the criminal liability is pretty intense. It's a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine for a first offense. And so these devices become, you know, unauditable attack surfaces that uh, bad guys can probe all they want. But if good guys discover defects in them, they can only disclose them if the manufacturer decides that it's okay. And manufacturers are historically very poor custodians of bad news about their own products. So, you know, Medtronics, for example, the leading um, uh, uh, implant manufacturer just got outed for having implanted defibrillators that, you know, this is like a, a battery and a computer that is implanted in your chest cavity and attached to your heart, like with a wireless interface, what could possibly go wrong? And it turns out that there's a whole bunch of things that go really wrong with Medtronic's products. And, you know, when, when security researchers finally outed them, 
they said, oh, there's nothing to worry about. You know, the fact that someone can uh, give you a lethal shock from 30 feet away, we're pretty sure no one would do that, so it's okay. You should keep the wireless interface turned on. And this is, you know, the, the, the caliber of responsibility that you get from these vendors. Or, you know, another example would be that um, the Swiss are about to have their first all online election. And Swiss Post, who are administering at the post office, they hired this company out of Barcelona to build this extremely like next gen, sexy, zero knowledge based voting system. That you know, they said, well, this this is going to be a really good voting system. The zero knowledge stuff allows us to um, count ballots uh, with a high degree of reliability, even if there are people within the post office that you don't trust. They can't subvert the election because of this zero knowledge thing, and. Um, and, and then they said, and we're so sure of it, we'll, we'll have KPMG and some external security vendors audit it, but then we're gonna take the code, some of the code, and if you sign a non-disclosure, you can participate in a bug bounty program. And there were people who thought that this was a crappy way to run a bug bounty program to bind people to non-disclosure, so they dumped the code, right? They, they paste bend it. And so these super you know, elite security researchers then went and had a look at this paste bin code without having to engage in in any um, uh, non-disclosure with the firm. One of them, one of them is our client Matthew Green, who's the guy on whose behalf we're suing the U.S. government to uh, invalidate the DMCA. And they found that um, a single untrusted entity at the post office could untraceably subvert every single vote in the election with no audit trail and no way to detect it. And when Swiss Post was notified of this. They said, okay, well, originally we said that, you know, we, you, this, this was like, this was zero knowledge and didn't require that you trust the post office. But the fact that it requires that you trust the post office is not a big deal because we're pretty trustworthy, right? And like, this is what vendors do, right? I mean, vendors are just like the rest of us. Nobody likes to be, to be, uh, have their errors pointed out. And we are all prone to self-justification, right? This is why alchemy got us nowhere and science has, has been an engine of progress. Because although alchemists formulated experiments and conducted them, they never told anyone what they thought they'd learned. And so for 500 years, alchemists discovered in the hardest way possible that you really shouldn't be drinking mercury, right? And it wasn't until alchemists started publishing and subjecting their findings to adversarial peer review, right? Until they basically had open source that they started to have like code audits by people who you know, who, whose paychecks, uh, who weren't depending on them for their paychecks, who, who, who weren't their friends, you know, people who disliked them and wanted them to fail. And they had to be able to, to survive audits from, from, by people who hated them, not by people who liked them. And if you can survive that audit, then you're probably pretty good. So Executive Order 13, um, or Article 13 just passed. Oh, yeah, in the EU. Yeah. Yep. Um, I guess my first question is, what do you think? Yeah, so let me give you a little primer on, on what, what it is and then what it, how it passed and then what it means. So, so the European Union, obviously, it's this, this collective of 28 states, a federation of 28 states, maybe 27 soon, depending on what happens in England, or in the United Kingdom, rather. And um, it, it creates these things called directives. And directives, you can think of it as being a little like a treaty between a bunch of nations, like, say, the WTO or something. Everyone gets together and agrees on a set of principles, and then they have to turn those principles into national laws, right? So they, they make these laws. And uh, directives, they're kind of slow moving beasts because they have to uh, take account of the national priorities of 28 countries. And the last time the copyright directive was updated was 2001, which means that it was negotiated between like 1998 and 2001. So it's getting a little long in the tooth and obviously copyrights moved along since then and the things copyright is supposed to regularly moved along. So for the last several years, there's been uh, plans and meetings and negotiations to update the copyright directive. And early on, there were a couple of very controversial ideas. One of them is the one that we call Article 13. Uh, and it was this idea that we would shift the liability for users infringing copyright from the current system in which um, companies have a duty to expeditiously remove infringing material on notification or can be held jointly liable with the user. So in other words, if you have a place where users can communicate, where users can post their own material, you don't have to proactively police it. But if someone tells you that something's infringing, you don't get to say, well, go get a court order. It's staying up until then. You have to take it down straight away. And if you don't take it down, then if it turns out it is infringing, then you can be sued alongside the user with very high statutory damages. Um, and, and so that, that's called safe harbor. And Article 13 upends Safe Harbor and instead imposes a general duty 
to prevent users from infringing in the first place. And the way that it, 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 uh, the original drafts of Article 13 accomplished this is by creating a duty to build copyright filters like the ones that YouTube uses uh, for copyright infringement, the content ID filter, which is a kind of $100 million boondoggle. It's been around for about 10 years and, and is widely exploited by bad actors, uh, both to suppress material that they don't want to see. Also, it's often people very sloppily add things to the, to the copyright filter to, you know, not maliciously, but, but indifferently to the consequences of their actions. You know, for example, NASA couldn't upload the, the Mars uh, rover uh, landing because all the newscasts that had picked it up the night before had uploaded their news footage to YouTube and claimed copyright in it. And so when, when NASA came along to do it, they couldn't post their own footage, even though they, they've been the originators of it. And even though it's in the public domain, right? Federal, federal works are in the public domain. And so this is really problematic. You know, for one thing, there's only about five companies in the world that can afford to build these filters and they're all giant American companies. And so the European tech sector would have been snuffed out at the stroke of a pen. And so, and, and also, you know, these things can't take account of fair dealing, which is the European equivalent of fair use. They, they, you know, both over and under match attackers can probe them for free, right? You can create an unlimited number of Google accounts and find the deficiencies in it. So, you know, the big rights holder organizations are the first people to tell you that content ID hasn't stopped people from infringing like crazy uh, and that things get around the content ID filter all the time. So for all of these reasons and several more, it was taken off the drawing board. And then this German MEP who's just, it must be said, not very bright, a guy named Axel Voss, took over and reintroduced these and had all kinds of just bananas things to say. Like he was like, uh, well, of course, uh, you know, artificial intelligence can recognize um, memes and other fair use. Why, if you just go to Google image search and search for memes, all you'll see are memes. Obviously, AIs can detect memes, right? Just just really stupid things like that. It's sometimes hard to know whether he like means it or not. Um, and so he reintroduced this. It was hugely controversial. And, you know, a million people signed a petition and over the course of about two weeks in the run up to a crucial vote asking to have it deleted. Unfortunately, the, the members of the European Parliament who voted against it were split into two camps. One group wanted to reform these clauses and the other one wanted to delete them. And as a result, the clauses survived that motion. And, um, you know, over time, it became ever more obvious that uh, these, these clauses were going to be deal breakers. And so they added a bunch of fig leaves, like they said, well, small and medium sized enterprises don't need these, don't need filters. Uh, provided that they've been in existence for less than three years, or they have less than 5 million users, or they've turned over less than 10 million euros in a year, which means that your 10 million in first euro costs you 100 million euros in copyright compliance, right? Or, or you know, as soon as your message board for cat fanciers turns three years old, then all of a sudden you have a general monitoring and filtering duty. And, and so this was very unconvincing, especially to Germany where there's a big startup scene, and the Germans backed out of it. Um, but then, and it, and it was dead, but then there was this last minute Hail Mary that brought it back again. Uh, and um, uh, the, uh, it wasn't clear what had happened, but somehow the Germans and the French had come to peace. Uh, and, and it wasn't clear how they'd arrived at that, but they'd arrived at it somehow. And uh, the, um, it, it, there was a leak just before the final vote this week that revealed that the way that they'd gotten there is that the French agreed to drop their opposition to a Russian gas pipeline that the Germans wanted. So they literally traded away like a Russian gas pipeline, was super dirty. So 5 million people signed a petition against this. It was the largest petition in European history. 200,000 people marched against it in 50 cities. Um, a number of people came out against it. Uh, Vint Cerf, the creator of TCPIP, uh, Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the web, uh, many other tech luminaries, a coalition of the top copyright scholars in Europe also came out against it. The UN Special Rapporteur for Free Speech came out against it. Um, and so there was a vote held. And the first of the votes was on whether or not to debate each clause, because the, the copyright directive is so big and sprawling that it was definitely going to pass. And so we would have to have clause by clause debates. And you need a simple majority to get to open that debate. And the simple majority failed by five votes. And afterwards, it was revealed that 10 MEPs voted the wrong way because they were confused about which issue they were voting on. Literally, like the UI was too confusing. And the way the European Union works is that although their votes have been corrected in the final record so that we had a majority, 
the vote is played as it lies. And so the fact that in the moment it was tabulated as a majority for the other side means that we no longer have a chance to appeal it. And so what this means, practically speaking, is that uh, all of the Western internet is probably going to end up being subjected to this. I think of this as like the, if you think about how like um, uh, people who speak Chinese around the world use WeChat, and it doesn't matter what country you're in, WeChat applies Chinese filtering rules to to your your WeChat experience. That's probably what it's going to be like. Because you, you can imagine like if you're Twitter and, you know, an American says something and another American re replies to it and then a European sees it and the, um, um, this first American reply is hidden because it's triggered a filter in Europe, that, that conversation falls apart really quick. And so I think ultimately what they're going to be doing is applying this everywhere. So this is, I think, unless we can we can appeal it through the European Court of Justice or the European Court of Human Rights, or unless we can substantially soften it in all 28 of the European legislatures, because I think it's also the case that although each European country will implement it in different ways, uh, the platforms will probably comply with the most restrictive version, because otherwise they're going to have to, again, detect whether you're in Spain or Italy or France or Germany and apply different sets of rules to you depending on where you are. So they'll probably just stick with the worst of them. It'll be a race to the bottom. And that'll probably be France. France has announced that they're um, implementing it straight away ahead of schedule and that it will have mandatory filters. The filters aren't mandatory in the final draft. Uh, what they said is, uh, please don't use filters if at all possible, but make sure that you somehow examine everything that every user posts and check it against a blacklist of copyrighted material. It's like saying like, I, I would really prefer that you not bring me an elephant, but nevertheless, the law requires that you produce a four-legged gray African land mammal with uh, tusks and a trunk and a tail, but definitely not an elephant if at all possible. You're going to get an elephant, right? And so this is, this is absolutely catastrophic and I'm gutted. And the fact that it happened in this horrible backhanded way is, is particularly galling and depressing. But, um, you know, we're regrouping, we're going to sue, we're going to attack it in each of the national legislatures, and, you know, we're going to do what we can. And so when you say we, that's you with EFF, right? Yeah, with the Electronic Frontier Foundation and our allies in Europe. I mean, you know, when I started working with EFF in the early 2000s, there weren't a lot of other groups doing this stuff. There was the Free Software Foundation and eventually Creative Commons and, and one or two others. ACLU occasionally did some work on these subjects. Uh, but now, you know, there's these huge coalitions, both uh, of groups in different countries and groups with different briefs, you know, um, uh, whether that's the farm lobby, uh, lobbying for a right to repair and suddenly like taking on these digital issues or um, the ACLU now having a full time digital practice or the different national groups like the Open Rights Group in the UK that I helped found or, or groups in France like Quadrature the Net and so on. So uh, for, for people who are listening, what can they do to fight this? Well, you know, I think that, that we can we can move up a, a gradient of degrees of engagement, right? So I think that as like a minimum, join EFF's mailing list. Uh, we send out mailings at key junctures uh, to do things like either call your MEP or if you're not a European, to find your European friends and get them to do it. You know, the fact is that we are five MEPs away. Um, even with the missed votes, you know, it was very, very close. And if we just had 5% more activism, we could have carried it even with the, with the incorrect voting, we probably could have carried this over. And so that it, these are such close run things that it makes a huge difference. So that's the first thing. Giving EFF money is the second thing. Uh, I work for EFF, but they don't pay me. I get paid through, I'm a research affiliate at the MIT Media Lab and they make a grant to EFF and that gets passed on to me. And so your money, it, this is not about like me trying to get you to pay my bills. Um, I, I, I've been associated with the FF off and on since the early 2000s, and they are super effective, super spend thrifty. They, they, you know, or super thrifty rather. They, they, they only spend money when they need it, and they spend it in ways that makes a huge difference. So that's that's another thing you can do. And then, you know, locally getting involved with the Electronic Frontiers Alliance. There are chapters all around the world of, uh, or all around the U.S. at this point uh, of organizations that have other briefs like some of them are crypto parties and some of them are are other kinds of organizations but they they align themselves with EFF and they work on local issues through EFF and Electronic Frontiers Alliance groups are doing all kinds of amazing stuff especially with things like um, street level surveillance automated license plate cameras uh, facial recognition uh, and other things that, that really matter like bread and butter local issues um, and and then you know 
there, there are varying degrees of involvement within those groups where you can become an organizer, um, you can start one of your own if there isn't one in your hometown and so on. So that's kind of the, that's a set of things you can do. So to kind of drive home this thing, what do you think the future looks like if Article 13 stays as is? Well, you know, as a science fiction writer, I know that I'm totally unqualified to predict the future, uh, as is everybody else. Uh, right. You know, uh, predicting the future is a, is a fool's errand. But um, what I think that the risks are is that you will have the platforms locked in forever. You know, we, we already have problems with lax antitrust enforcement where we've allowed these companies to get really big. You know, a good example would be that last year, Facebook had its biggest ever U.S. exodus. Uh, 15 million 13 to 34 year olds left Facebook, but most of them ended up on Instagram because the lack of antitrust enforcement has meant that even when you leave Facebook, you end up leaving Facebook for Facebook. Uh, and so if, if we're ever hoping to get uh, challengers to the platforms coming from Europe that might have different ideas about privacy, or even if we're hoping that some regulator someday says we're going to break up the, the, the big monopolies, that's going to be contingent on the monopolies not having uh, sort of regulatory duties that are so intense that they can only perform them if they're giant monopolies, right? Back back when AT&T was a monopoly, every time someone wanted to break AT&T up, they would point to all of their public duties, you know, as a part of the public safety uh, network and the emergency response system. And they would say, you know, if you make us any smaller, we can't do this stuff, right? We can't, we couldn't run 911. We couldn't do all these other things. So there's a real risk that as we lard public duties onto these companies, that they will be locked in forever. And moreover, you know, once we do this, it, it's, it opens the door to more enforcement. So one of the things the European Union didn't get to in the session that they probably will after elections in May is um, a, a, a plan to force the platforms to respond to and remove uh, so-called extremist content reports of, of things related to terrorism and to remove it within an hour. And, you know, we already see that the platforms are really bad at, at evenly applying censorship standards or, or even evaluating uh, takedown notices to see whether they, they pass the giggle test. And so as soon as, you know, you add this hair trigger, it's going to be even more intense. There's going to be even more pressure on them to, to fail to take due consideration before removing user speech. Um, and, you know, the other thing that we know is that when these censorship duties are imposed in Western countries, it opens the door for it, the imposition in developing nations. So um, both Ch China and Western companies like Hacking Team have long uh, engaged with um, autocratic regimes in Sub-Saharan Africa and in Asia to sell them surveillance tools. And uh, you know, part of the sales pitch goes, well, all of this stuff is good and proportionate and consistent with good government, and you can tell because they do it in France or America or wherever. Right, so so that's that's another risk, and then finally, we're just going to open ourselves up for every kind of troll, right? Whether that's um, whether that's trolls who are engaged in reputation laundering, you know, the the kind of high price law firms that today use bogus takedown notices to help bad people uh, launder their image and and change what comes up with search results, or um, whether it's uh, blackmailers like we've seen where people use uh, copyright strikes in YouTube, fake copyright strikes in YouTube to uh, blackmail artists into paying them off because they know that that the works have been taken down or you know whether it's just jerks right someone who goes and file like writes a bot that every 30 minutes submits the entire works of william shakespeare to wordpress and lays claim to a copyright and someone at wordpress has to go in and remove those things and by the time they're done it's already been resubmitted one of the things we asked for in the directive that was rejected was um, the right of a platform to cease to listen to people who make a lot of fake claims. Uh, you know, the way that that would work is if you're caught making fake claims, then the platforms would say, okay, from now on, your claims have to come with a court order. You have to go and show evidence. And, and so that would stop, you know, for example, like if you had a reputation laundering company that filed a whole bunch of fake claims, but occasionally filed a realistic one, you, you, you would be able to ignore all of their claims. You could basically put them out of business. But the way that it works now is if you have a company that submits a million bogus claims, say a copyright troll that submits a million bogus claims in the hope that you will cease to listen to them and then find someone to let them represent their copyrights and files one good claim. And remember, this could be a claim on an Instagram photo, on a tweet, on a Facebook update. All of these things are copyrighted works at the moment of fixation. 
they can file that claim. And the fact that you stopped listening to them because they've, they've, um, you know, done so much jabbering that you shut them down as like a, a source of just all noise means that now they can come after you and get damages out of you. And so the platforms can't afford to ignore claims even from known bad actors. And so you will see people deliberately setting up copyright trolling operations to do this. I mean, you know, if, if people were willing to do this with just regular old DMCA takedowns and so on, you know, when you have these these DMCA on steroid regimes, um, you know, again, I'm, I, I think it's a pretty good bet that the people who are willing to do this with with harder to abuse regimes will use these easier to abuse regimes. Yeah. Okay. So I think we've talked a lot about technological policies happening that are worrisome. Um, mm-hmm. Do you see anything happening, um, especially in cybersecurity, that excites you, uh, that gives you hope? Yeah. Well, I think that we are reaching a tipping point on this stuff. Um, I think that you're seeing more litigation over it. And, and I think litigation is really important. You know, the security economics of bad infosec are pretty easy to see. You know, if, if Home Depot only gets fined 80 cents per customer for breaching 80 million credit card numbers, why wouldn't they do it? You know, right. it's, it's just not worth the security needed to, to protect those credit cards when, when you're only paying 80 cents to, when you lose them. And so I, I think that when you start to see these bigger judgments against firms and, and some political will for statutory damages against firms, it changes the security economics. You know, one day the insurer just shows up and says, like, we are not going to write policies for you if you are going to warehouse user data. Um, so that's definitely changing. You know, you have this like normative shift, right, where, where everyday individuals are starting to care more about security, not in this, I mean, in the sense that they're using 2FA or, or you know, good, uh, pa- good, strong random passwords and a password manager or whatever, but also that they're caring like, why are you asking for this in the first place? Why are you retaining this? You know, we're getting past the, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear, and into, you know, a much more realistic risk assessment. Um, and and uh, I think that um, there's a sense that that this matters beyond, you know, just your online accounts, that, that information security also is the thing that keeps you from getting malicious updates to your thermostat or to your home camera or to any of a million other embedded systems that literally have the power of life and death over you. So going back to Radicalized, um, while writing Radicalized, did anything surprise you? While writing Radicalized? No, I, I don't think I was surprised by Radicalized. I mean, it was an accidental book in the sense that I didn't intend to write any of it. None of these were like scheduled work projects. You know, I, I often know what I'm going to be writing over the next year or two years. You know, it's especially when you work at novel lengths, you have these long-term projects. These were all stories that I wrote as therapy for my own Trump derangement syndrome to try and kind of work out my anxiety about where we are now. And so I guess in that sense, they were surprising. It's happened before that that things that I was upset about, I wrote. Um, I was, I guess, pleasantly surprised by how receptive my publisher was to this. Um, they, they're treating what is effectively a short story collection as though it were a novel. They paid me for it like it was a novel. They're, they're promoting it like it was a novel. And short story collections are usually very minor almost vanity projects for authors and and this you know is being is getting national distribution national media attention and so on um and and that i guess was very pleasantly surprising um speaking of your trump derangement uh syndrome and those symptoms um or, or do you see anything happening in the u.s government that uh has given you hope yeah in u.s politics i have yeah. to say that you know a couple of years ago i felt like our job was to convince someone to introduce legislation that we'd be willing to support and now mm-hmm. our job is to convince people to support the legislation that's being introduced, right? Whether that's the Green New Deal or Elizabeth Warren's call to break up the tech monopolies um, or Elizabeth Warren's proposal yesterday to have a, a, a national right to repair rule for farm equipment. Um, you know, uh, I think that we're like in a, in a key moment. It's really hard to know when your adversary is uh, always uh, on the attack and when every act of resistance is met with incredible retaliation and pushback. It's hard to know in the moment whether that represents confidence by your adversary that they are unassailable and so that they, they can react in this, uh, you know, completely disproportionate way, or whether it reacts, re- reflects anxiety in your adversary because they realize that uh, any opposition that grows beyond a little spark could, could uh, uh, destroy them completely because they're so weak and fragile. And the more I see, the more I feel like the forces of reaction, of fear, um, of monopoly, 
of inequality that they really have this sense that they're right at the end. I mean, today it was leaked that Apple has, um, who, Apple single-handedly killed the right to repair legislation in, in you know, 30 states. Um, and Apple is now, is now secretly circulating internal documents about their plan to allow independent repair ahead of what they know is going to be regulation. They know that they've lost it. So what is one lesson that you have learned through your journey through all of this um, and possibly something for the listeners to take away with? I'd say that the, the most important insight I've had in my career is that you cannot judge the quality of your work in the moment, whether it's good or bad, and that doing the work and then letting it sit and then evaluating it later is the best way to get the work done. That, that what we think of as writer's block or programmer's block it's, it's a lack of confidence in the quality of the work you're doing, not an inability to do the work. And if you can, if you can sit with that lack of confidence and do the work anyway, you don't have to be confident in it. You can always set it aside later. You can even, you know, comment into your code something that says, this is probably garbage. Make sure to look at it later so you don't accidentally leave it in. But if, if you can, uh, if you can do that, you can be a reliable producer and the quality of the work will be better than you think it is. Corey Doctorow, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you very much. It was absolutely my pleasure. I had a lovely, lovely time. Um, thank you for talking to, me, talking to me about rum and schooling me on that, too. <laughs> um, I will definitely check those out. Um, what Do you have any last words, uh, words of wisdom, um, shout outs, shameless plugs, anything? Mm, well, I guess, you know, support the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, we, uh, If you've got your users back, we've got your back. Awesome. Hey, thanks for listening. Just another reminder that we're changing our name to Security Sandbox and that this show's cover art will change starting next Monday. Corey will be on tour with his book until the middle of May. You can find out where he'll be by checking out his website at crabhound.com, where you can also buy his book. I seriously recommend checking him out. He even has some of his previous works as free ebooks. This episode was recorded and mixed by me. Special thanks to Corey for an awesome conversation and we wish him the best with Radicalized. Also, a special thanks to Tor, his publisher who helped facilitate this episode. You can check those folks out at tor.com. And of course, thank you listener for tuning in. You can let us know what you thought of this episode by tweeting at HackerCultureFM. If you liked the episode, consider leaving it a review on Apple Podcasts or leave me a message on Anchor. And don't forget to tune in next week on wherever you listen to podcasts.